Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 143. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode. I pray that it's a blessing. And I want to welcome everyone. This may be the first time you're tuning in, or you may be f- followed along with this podcast now for some time. Those listening here locally in the United States and those spread out all across the world. Um, I'm extremely grateful for what God has done to spread the reach. Um, I think by last count, over 50 different countries uh, represented in and through this podcast. I'm blown away and I'm thankful. So in today's episode, I am going to deliver a teaching that I have recently given. And it's going to come out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You may be familiar with this chapter in the New Testament. Uh, It's one of Paul's writings uh, to the Corinth church. But before we dive in, it is important to give a little background of the church that we are reading about in this book. Now, we very often romanticize the early church. I've thought to myself and even heard, if we could just go back to being the, quote, early church. But even a surface reading of Paul's letters to the different churches would reveal to us that these churches were far from ideal, yet we have turned them into an ideal rather than a reality. Corinth had been settled originally in Greek culture, but in the Roman occupation in the 2nd century BC, it was rebuilt and became a center of ancient commerce. This was an entertainment city. It was known for its elegant arts, its pagan worship, prostitution, all sorts The Corinth church first had the gospel preached to it by Paul around 51 AD, and Paul had stayed there around a year and a half, which puts it around 51 to 53 AD. Now, don't be ultra married to these timelines. Even uh, professional scholars differ and would suggest varying times. So, Use them as guides. Don't, be, uh, don't let it be a hill that you're willing to die on. Now, in Acts chapter 18, we can read the first introduction of the gospel into that city. Corinth was an extremely large city, the capital of Achaia, Greece. By some accounts, 500,000 people lived there. Now, many major cities in the United States in our day don't have that many people living there. This just gives you a sample of its footprint. Now, because this was a Gentile region, more Gentiles than Jews made up its church. Because of its secular Gentile heritage, that means it has to contend with much of its non-Christian culture. 
the inhabitants of Corinth were very prosperous. It had ports, which meant much going in and going out, which increased its wealth, which much wealth disposed many to overindulgence and even corruption. Excess lended itself to sexual immorality, and immorality was rampant in this area. And because the church is made up of people coming out of lifestyles, behaviors, and cultures, Paul and other leaders are having to deal with these issues that either haven't left yet or are creeping back in. Now, this local church was dealing with schisms, divisions, impurity, and unrestrained behavior, and even incest. They coveted materialism, which led to lawsuits among believers. There was arguing over eating food, which was sacrificed to idols. There were issues in proper worship. There were problems of profaning the Lord's Supper, even controversy over the resurrection and eternal life. Many issues and very dire issues. Now, Paul addresses issues within this Corinth church in this letter and also gives advices and commands. It is said that this letter is written by Paul from Ephesus while he had remained there about three years, which puts this letter around 57 A.D. Now, as we go through chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, keep in the context of your thinking that Paul is writing to a local church body. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not applicable to you or me, but it does mean that this is not a cookie-cutter approach. It is written to a certain people in a certain time with certain and dire problems circulating and afflicting the people of God. Now, I hear many issues floating around the body of Christ about practices and doctrines that are established within the parameters of particular words of Paul. Now, we do well to remember that Paul wrote to people in time, in a culture, experiencing particular problems as he, Paul, was doing his best to lead apostolically the churches he oversaw. Now, also of note, before we start, remember that chapters and verses were inserted because originally they were written as a letter to be read to the body and its leadership. Now, we start to see forms of book division happening around the 4th century, and then chapters and verses happening around the 1200s and beyond. Again, these dates are fluid and somewhat arguable, so don't cling to them too hardly, but it gives us a guideline. Now, does, does this insertion of chapters and verses make us question the validity of Scripture? No, of course not. It makes it easier for us to find things. 
But we have to caution ourselves while navigating Scripture so that we don't unintentionally put brakes in the driving force in what is said. They are continuous thoughts that build upon each other and complement each other. Now that being said, chapter 12 deals with spiritual gifts, which I'd like to teach on some other good time, which leads into chapter 13, which is what we'll talk about, which addresses love within the body of Christ, which then flows into chapter 14, which details the expression of worship and function in service. So notice, love is sandwiched between spiritual gifts and expression of worship and church operation. I do not believe that that is coincidental. Okay, now, with sufficient background, we can move forward in the reading and then discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So let's just have a quick moment of prayer. Father, I thank you for all that you have done for all of us listening, that those um, those who would listen down the road, I just thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I ask that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to receive the word that you have for us in this moment, and then in subsequent moments down the road for those who would come later. I thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do and how you're moving across generations, across continents, and time is no barrier for you. So I thank you in advance, believing to have this text revealed to our hearts and minds and and use it applicably in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to actually read the tail end of chapter 12 to flow into 13. So we will start in verse 27 of chapter 12 and read all of chapter 13. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I can if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This Corinth church body was very open to spiritual gifts. They were very eager to practice them. Paul is very complimentary of exercising spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Not just complimenting them, he also commanded to not forbid it. That's chapters, uh, chapter 14, verse 39. As we can infer from the guidance that he gives... This also means that they ran into teaching and instructing opportunities because naturally people aren't perfect and will need guidance. Out of the gate, Paul tries to establish the importance of everything that we say, do, and think to be rooted in love. In his opening, Paul is trying to recalibrate the value we put on love. Notice, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Now, tongues of men we get, tongues of angels, how lovely and divine that is. We may have even heard a foreign language that warms our heart with its beauty and excellence, but we read that if love is absent in our life, it all is equal sounding to a gong or a cymbal. It's cringe-worthy. Wow. So, earthly or heavenly language that's absent of love is cringe-worthy. What's next? He says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Okay, stop right there. Paul tells us in chapter 14, 39 of 1 Corinthians to be eager to prophesy. So, if you have the gift to do something that I should be eager to do, 
And if we are able to plumb the depths of all mystery and possess all knowledge but lack love, we are nothing. What did he say of faith? Surely faith, because Hebrews 11.16 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. So what did he say of faith? He said, if I have a faith that moves mountains but do not love, I am nothing. That is sobering. We should start to be getting the hint from Paul here. What, well, what about selfishness or rather selflessness? Sorry. Next verse, he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast. Now, some translations may say give over my body to the flames. But if I do not have love, I gain nothing. So here, if I consider myself least by giving over all that I possess and even my very own flesh and body to die, I've gained nothing. Well, what about the verse that says, greater love has not a man than to lay down his life for his friends? That's Jesus said that in John 15, 13. Now, if you made that connection, that's a good one. But how do I reconcile that? Well, what am I trying to reconcile? If Paul is saying, if, if I give even my body but don't have love, I've gained nothing. And Jesus says greater love cannot be expressed than to lay down his life for his friends. So how do I reconcile these two? This tells me that it's not the act, it's the motivation. You see, if I give of myself disconnected from love, then I've gained nothing. And we actually already know that. You might say, how? Well, if your child gives away their last sucker to someone because they want praise or recognition, is that as praiseworthy as if they did it out of compassion? Is there a difference between a martyr who dies because they want to go down in history as a martyr compared with one who dies because they have committed themselves to a cause? Yes, there's a big difference. So I think that what Paul said and what Jesus said can be harmonized effectively because they are rooting out the same thing. Paul effectively said, if you give your life disconnected from love, you've gained nothing. And Jesus effectively said, laying down your life because of relationship or friends, no greater love can be expressed. You see, they're connected by love. Now, a side note here. When Jesus says then to lay down his life for his friends, the word life in the Greek is written as the word suke. This is, the you could say, the soul life or the whole person. 
This is a different word than bios in Greek, which is the physical life. So don't be married to the notion that the physical death of your body is the ultimate expression of greatest love. In fact, I would argue that the laying down of your soul, which some define as the mind, will, and emotions, the whole person, if you will, is much harder because of the repetitive nature of the decisions compared to a one-time sacrifice. Now, this is not to diminish or devalue the person who has laid down their life in the moment for uh, for the case of Christ, but what this is, and I would say or suppose um, or uh, suggest for your consideration is that it could be actually much harder to live for Christ than to die for Christ. Why? Because day to day, time after time, the decisions that we must refuse ourselves and follow after Christ. Now moving forward, beginning in verse 4, Paul now shifts to define what love is to the student reading this wanting to learn what Paul's speaking of to define what love is by this point is very useful because one may be saying okay Paul I see your restructuring of the value of love so what is love verses 4 through 8 seeks to do that some justice Paul attempts at giving us a paradigm of how to understand what is love. Now, when listening to this, measure your life by these words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Okay, stop there. If you're listening, who is convicted? I know I surely am. If you're not convicted, you've got problems. And we would do well to start each day with this as a guide and end every day with an assessment. How did we execute this? And when God shows us the holes, ask Him to help us repair the breaches. While each and every believer is on the potter's wheel being formed, it does not mean that we are satisfied with our imperfection, nor does it mean that we have license to remain imperfect. If you are operating outside of this definition of love, it's time to recalibrate and allow King Jesus to shape and mold us and yield to his perfect leadership by way of fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Now, you may be listening, recalling specific moments where this definition of love has failed in your life. And you may need to go to those people whom you have failed and ask for forgiveness. 
Remember James 5.16, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There is healing available inside repentance. Now Paul closes out this final portion by speaking of a time when prophecy will cease, when tongues will be stilled, where knowledge will pass away, because now we know in part and prophesy in part, because we have yet been made perfect, but when, quote, the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So, has perfect come? No. <laughs> I think we can attest to that just in our day-to-day -day life, even the condition of our own hearts and the the dynamic that we have even among believers. No, the perfect has not come but it will. When as a child, you think as a child, but when as an adult, it's time to think as an adult. It's time to put off childish thinking and become mature sons and daughters of God, for this is pleasing to God. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, that should strike you as very profound. Now I know in part. So in this, in this time in which I live and exist, he's saying, I, I don't have the complete picture. I only know in part, but there's coming a time when I will know fully, even as I am fully known. That's deeply profound because as God knows us fully, there's coming a time when we will know fully. And he goes on to say in closing there, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love greater than faith? Have you considered that? Recall the greatest commandment when Jesus was asked by an expert in the law. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Matthew 22, 35-40. For it is love that positions you rightly to God. And then it's love that permits right posture toward your fellow man or woman. The greatest of faith, hope, and love is love. God, I thank you for this moment of sharing your word. I pray that it hits us deep in our hearts and our minds, and it, it's your word searches us and reveals to us the areas in our life that need to be transformed by the power of your resurrection life 
in our hearts and minds. I pray that any who are listening to this that do not yet know you through Jesus Christ, that they would come to know you, they would come to encounter you and be saved by the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for what you're doing, how you will multiply this, and what you'll do in the hearts and lives of those who hear. I thank you in Jesus' name. If it Amen. means that I'm close to you, I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with you.